Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. How can we maintain our quality of life in retirement without exhausting our funds? We don't know how long we'll live, and the unpredictability of inflation and market crashes combine to make retirement planning one of the most intricate puzzles in investing. I want to know how to manage the risks and what strategies can help us enjoy our golden years. And in today's dumb question of the week, is it best to just live off the dividends? All right, let's get into it. So we've spent our whole lives, I imagine, building up this retirement pot, saving away every month and investing in stocks and bonds and whatever else. So then I guess it's going to be a massive psychological shift. And the first challenge we encounter at retirement is to start drawing down on that pot. And instead of seeing it grow, we start seeing it potentially slowly shrink. Yeah, it's one of the shocks that comes with life, I think. You know, also, you start to see your body fall apart. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm seeing that already. 36. My knees are gone. Oh, no. 50. And yeah, I can definitely feel it. But it is right that it's scary. And you see the amount of money you've got shrinking. And you think, well, okay, this is kind of the beginning of the end. But I guess we always knew it was coming. So psychologically, we should really be preparing for that fact that the reason we've been putting this money aside is for now. Yeah, I guess we should embrace it because this is a chance to have more flexibility in your life and be able to do the things you wanted to do. So that's the upside of it, particularly the early years, you know, when you've still got good mobility, good health, probably. Those are the times when you can really benefit from the increased flexibility and the freedom. And it's not just a psychological challenge, is it? There's a real mathematical problem here. Just because there's so many uncertainties in retirement, for one, how long are you going to live? But then also, how well is your portfolio going to do in terms of returns? So if we use the Aesop fable classification of people into ants and grasshoppers, where the grasshopper basically doesn't plan and just has a good time, and the ant plans very carefully... Well, my father was very much of the grasshopper school of thinking. Or not thinking. If there was any thinking. Yes. And he lived a great life. He really enjoyed it. And he obviously paid for it to some extent towards the end of his life with very reduced means. Is that why you've gone extremely the other way and plan everything meticulously? I think so. And I think in a way, I kind of feel jealous of my father because things were okay for him despite the fact that he had never planned, he had a great time. Happy-go-lucky. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad that he did have a good life. Obviously, I don't regret that. But I think for many people, if you have done all of that planning and all of that careful saving, you should be celebrating the fact that now you can actually benefit from it and just use it to the best possible ability. And I think an element of that planning, it's not just that it all turns around on the moment you retire, is it? It's in that period building up to retirement. There's probably going to be some adjustment of your portfolio because of this thing called sequence of returns risk, which is probably the first big risk we should talk about because it comes at that point around retirement. And just to explain what that is, sequencing risk, it's really important because if you think about how long your portfolio is going to last, so let's assume that you're planning to draw down the entire portfolio such that you've almost run out of money just as you die. Well, what will affect the amount of time the money lasts most is the returns very early in retirement. So let's say that you get a 20% crash in your portfolio in the first year of retirement versus the last year of retirement just before you die. The early crash has a much bigger impact, negative impact, 
on how long the money lasts than the one at the end of your life, simply because you've got more money at that point and it has a much bigger impact later on because of the compounding. And I guess because you're drawing from that reduced portfolio that there's less money to then recover. It's the inverse, isn't it, of compound returns, is that if you nibble away at a smaller part early on, you're going to see less compound growth later on. Yeah, the initial amount is not going to grow from that point onwards. And you crystallise the loss early on. And it's not just the amount you withdraw, it's the compounded amount of that crystallised loss, which really hurts you. So how do we mitigate that risk then? Because we can't control what the market does. It might well crash the moment we retire. And people who retired in 2020 probably thought, oh my God, I'm living in the Monte Carlo sim busting (laughs) year. (laughs) And they were right. You know, there are periods of time when the returns are just not in your favour as a retiree. So at the moment, what we're facing is very high inflation in most developed countries. But on the flip side, interest rates, risk-free rates are now much higher. So if you do de-risk, you're going to be earning a pretty good return on your cash-like investments, a money market fund, short-term government bonds. Those will be yielding above 5%. But of course, it's negative in real terms at the moment. And once inflation does come down, then we will see those policy rates fall and the income will also fall, unless you've locked it in with longer-term government bonds. So I think that's the difficulty. What you can do at the moment is you can de-risk and earn a reasonable return, even if you have a fairly low risk investment, which is a good thing. So that's the kind of antidote to sequence of returns risk is to adjust your asset allocation in the, I don't know, what, five, 10 years before retirement? How long a runway do we need to start dialing down the risk? Unfortunately, there's no clear cut answer there, because if you imagine that there is a crash, and you don't recover from it by the time you start crystallizing your portfolio. By crystallize, I just mean drawing down on it. Then you can run into trouble. Now, there's also another element here, which is if you've just got one fund, which has bonds and it has stocks in it, like life strategy, but there are many others now. The problem is that you can't choose which asset you sell first. You have to sell the whole lot in the proportion that exists in the fund. Whereas if you do have that split between bonds and equity, at least, then you can choose which one to sell first. And if there is one which hasn't crashed as much as the rest, you could just crystallise the one which hasn't fallen, which has actually rallied, because it is a good hedge. But of course, again, at the moment, what we're seeing is people nursing losses on their stocks. The only things which have really held up have been gold and cash, or short-term government bonds, or bonds which you've held to maturity, where you bought single bonds. So you can have some flexibility still, if you were lucky enough to have that hedge in place before you went into drawdown. It's an interesting approach that, and I've heard it talked about more and more, it's kind of a dynamic asset allocation, isn't it? Where you're not just rebalancing every year to keep your 60-40 portfolio or whatever it might be. You're actually doing something a bit more clever and saying, this asset has fallen more, therefore I'm going to leave that one alone and live off the one that's doing better. And by doing that, you make the pot last longer. And there are some really nice results that people have published where they look at which strategy is best. Do you sell the bonds first? Do you sell the stocks first? Or do you sell the thing which has crashed most recently? Or do you sell the thing which has not crashed? And it turns out that the best thing to do is simply to sell the bonds first, because that lets the equity compound for longer. In the back test, certainly, that strategy is best. 
And that works out just because equity generally has a higher return than bonds over the long term. So the longer you leave the equity, the more it's going to grow. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you could be unlucky with the return still. So if you go through a period where the main investments you've got have crashed, they're not recovered, then you don't really have anything to choose from. If I was in that situation, I'd probably still draw down on the bonds first because the chances are the equity will bounce back faster than the bonds. And I guess the thing here is to come up with a proper plan before you retire, that this is what I'm going to do in terms of which assets I'm going to sell first, rather than getting to the position where you're looking at portfolio each year and saying, oh my God, which do I sell now? It's all crashed. And it's always good to have lots of historical evidence before you do that. So don't just think things are going to be like they were in the last decade of zero interest rates, because that's a really unusual period. If you can go back to 1929 or however far you can go back, the better. 1929 is a good choice, isn't it? That's another Monte Carlo sim busting year. (laughs) That was the real standout. I don't think there's ever been anything like 1929 in recorded history. So that was the Great Depression where US stocks fell by something like 90% over the next two years, right? It was really bizarrely different from anything that followed. So if you were unlucky and you just literally put everything into the market in 1929, you'd be screwed. But very few people were in that situation. They'd been saving for some time before that, so their losses would have been much smaller. But I guess there's a deeper point here, which is that no matter how many of these backtests you do, you're never going to take risk off the table entirely. There's always going to be some small chance that you will run out of money. And you kind of have to be comfortable with that fact when you start living off your portfolio, right? There's all these strategies you can do to minimise that risk, but the risk isn't zero. And I think expecting those crashes is another important thing in order to prepare for retirement. It will happen. Equity will fall, probably, by 50% at some point from its previous all-time high. So I think preparing for that mentally is a really important thing and planning for it. You don't want to be in a situation where you've planned all this time and suddenly everything seems to come unstuck. And a lot of people put stock in the idea of a sustainable withdrawal rate, don't they? That there's this percentage you can withdraw from your portfolio each year, which should allow you to live for, let's say, 30 years without exhausting your pot. So the safe amount. There are two strategies here. You know, the one which is what most people think of in retirement is the sustainable withdrawal rate, which is what you're talking about, where some of your capital lasts just until you pass away. So it's just enough to live on, leaving nothing for your dependents. And this is presumably, if you're a couple, that's for both of you. And the statistics there are quite different, as we'll see. The other strategy is called the perpetual withdrawal rate, where what you want, your goal, is instead of just running out of money as you pass away, you're going to have the same amount in the pot just as you die as you had initially in inflation-adjusted terms. So that's why it's called a perpetual pot. And there, presumably, what you're trying to do is to pass on something to your family. I mean, it's interesting when you mention the sustainable withdrawal rate and the idea that your money to just about outlast you and it runs down to almost zero by the time you retire. Because what's interesting, let's say it sets the sustainable withdrawal rate at 4%, for example. That's the idea that if you look back over the last 100 years, in the worst case scenario, your pot would have just about lasted your 30 years without running out. But in most of those potential retirements over the last 100 years, that wouldn't have happened. You'd have actually made loads of money and would have died with a huge pot because returns were much better than in the worst case scenario. Well, there were some tough periods during that period since 1970. 
you know, we had a very high inflation period in the 1970s, and that was significantly worse, the inflation problem, than it is now. And so those real returns during that period were atrocious. So if you span that period, certainly, I think that's a pretty bad scenario. There are definitely scary scenarios in there. But all I'm trying to say is, if you go into it thinking I can withdraw the sustainable withdrawal rate and I'll just about survive with my money, if you look at the simulations, in most scenarios, you'll actually do really well. This is like the worst case scenario, right? Is all I'm trying to say. That's right. And that's pretty much all you can do. So it's always a kind of trade-off between how bad a scenario do I plan for and what kind of size of pot do I want in order to maintain that lifestyle. And if you've got more margin for error, then you need a bigger pot because you can't really change the withdrawal rate unless you change the portfolio. And again, the portfolio can only do so much heavy lifting. And there has been a lot of research on how well portfolios perform over a 30-year retirement horizon. And this is where the 4% rule comes from, which you may have heard of, which is the idea that at the moment you retire, you calculate 4% of your initial starting pot, and then that's what you withdraw every year, uprating for inflation. No matter if your portfolio goes up or down in that time, you're always withdrawing 4% of the initial pot. Now, a lot of people question the 4% rule, and some of the best research I've seen on this comes from Wade Fowle, who's crunched all the numbers based on the Dimpson, Marsh & Staunton global returns data set to look at what is the sustainable withdrawal rate. And it really does depend on what country you're in. So I've got a table here of if you put together a portfolio of 50% equity and 50% bonds, and you did it for the domestic market in lots of countries around the world, what would the sustainable withdrawal rate have been? And this is from the period of 1900 to 2015. So near the top of the table, unsurprisingly, is the United States. They've just had great returns in their domestic market. And there it is nearly 4%. 3.94% is the safe withdrawal rate they calculate here. So what? The 4% rule works? <laughs> Everyone slags it off nowadays, but it's pretty close. Oh, I love the thing at the bottom of the table. Yeah. And then if you look down to the bottom of the table, Austria, where my wife is from, the safe withdrawal rate is... Apparently, 0.07%. <laughs> Basically, your money's worthless. <laughs> they must have had some really bad periods in there. But I think for our point of view, the UK, and this would be if you were just investing in domestic UK stocks and domestic UK bonds, it calculates a safe withdrawal rate of 3.36%. But maybe more relevant is the global portfolio, which is looking at developed markets around the world. So you're diversified across developed markets. And there, it's around 3.45%. It's calculated as a safe withdrawal rate, and that's based on 50% global stocks and 50% global bonds. And world XUS, just under 3%. So it's interesting what a difference it makes, quite where you're investing, and how important diversification is here. And I think also, it shows you the transformative power of having exchange-traded funds. Few people kind of remember the period when you couldn't do this. You couldn't buy a globally diversified fund without spending a lot on trading fees. You'd have had to buy the single stocks on different exchanges. And that just couldn't be done by most people. But now we can do it really cheaply. So I think that's really important. And I think something we should celebrate that we can do that. Definitely. We are living in the golden age of being able to customise our portfolio on the cheap. But I guess it's also important to say that these rates we just talked about, these safe withdrawal rates, are based on historic data. And there's no guarantees, right, that they're going to be safe going forward. Yeah, so all the usual caveats apply. We're not providing financial advice and we're not providing forecasts. And so all of these things should be taken 
with a big pinch of salt. And really, all you can do is plan for things, hoping that the future will resemble the past. If there's something utterly catastrophic, clearly none of this is going to help. Yeah, World War III is going to decimate everyone's portfolio if that comes. But even if you go back before the Second World War, returns weren't that bad. You know, there was still positive returns. So even in those kind of scenarios, exchanges do shut down. So for example, after the Blitz, I think the UK stock exchange shut down for a while, understandably. But eventually things did pick up again. I think people are surprisingly resilient when it comes to things like commerce and trading. Yeah. I'm looking down this table because it does actually list the worst year to have retired in. And for most countries, it's 1937, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Well, 1914 for Austria. Yeah. Let's not talk about Austria. (laughs) I'll be in trouble. So the 4% rule equivalent for Austria would have been the 0.07% rule. And there to earn 40,000 a year, you'd have had to invest 57 million. Not many people are having a retirement then in that case. But you can't really plan around that, can you? You just have to be diversified globally and think of your domestic market as just one among many markets. Yeah, there's one market that will usually save you. In recent history, it's been the US, but presumably there'll be other countries which eventually push markets upwards. And it's interesting that there's a difference between this safe withdrawal rate and the kind of number of failures you would get in that sample size. So let's take the UK, for example. We said the safe withdrawal rate was around 3.36%. But even if you went crazy and had a withdrawal rate of 5%, you'd still make it through your retirement more often than not. So the failure rate was 46%. Now, you don't want to take that risk with your retirement, but it just kind of says that the distribution is an interesting thing here. And there's still a chance of failure, even if you're fairly cautious, unless you have something like a guardrail embedded into your strategy. What's a guardrail? So with a guardrail, the idea is that let's say there is a market crash and the crash is chunky, let's say, I don't know, 50%, then your retirement withdrawal for the following year is going to be twice as big in percentage terms. Yeah, you've got an 8% withdrawal right now if you stick to your starting rule of 4%. So what you can do is say, what's my withdrawal this year as a percentage of the size of my pot? How does that compare with my initial withdrawal rate? And if it's more than a certain amount, the guardrail, then you dial back the amount you withdraw. Now, that's not pretty, clearly, because it means you have to spend less because of the reduced withdrawal amount. And so, yeah, it's not pleasant, but there's no way around it. Because if you do withdraw the full amount, then you're going to crystallise a bigger loss. Unless you've got something in your portfolio which hasn't drawn down, in which case you can sell that. Yeah, this is where you're hoping your bonds have rallied to save you. Yeah, not so good in 2022, but usually good. But it's an interesting point because it implies that if you have some adjustability in your spending, right, if you're not just running it really close to the wire each year and you need every penny, then you can probably manage a higher withdrawal rate early on because you know you can always squash your spending if the market crashes. Yeah, I think having the choices is really important and having a diversified portfolio, but also a portfolio where it's invested in different things, where you have the choice about what to sell. I think that's probably the better choice. Because I was just thinking, like, if we take the 4% withdrawal rate, let's say, as a benchmark, You kind of have to dial it down or dial it up based on a number of things. If your fees are high for the investments you've chosen, you definitely need to dial your withdrawal rate down. If your taxes are going to be high, 
based on what you're withdrawing from your portfolio. Again, you need to dial it down. Weirdly, if you think you're going to live a really long time, right, you're just a super fit, healthy person, then you need to start drawing less from your portfolio, right? Whereas if you're a smoker and like skydiving, <laughs> you can probably dial that withdrawal rate way up. And you see that reflected in annuity rates, for example, where you get more money if you're a smoker. I recently had a chat with a client who's essentially an epidemiologist. So he really understands things like survival statistics and expected lifetime. And we'd both seen this statistic about the tube map in London, where you plot a tube map. And as you plot the route from South Kensington out into the sticks, life expectancy gradually falls and then rapidly falls. Really? Such that life expectancy in South Ken is the highest anywhere in the UK. So he was joking about moving to South Ken in order to increase his life expectancy. Yeah, the trouble is South Ken's pretty expensive. (laughs) I live in Islington, which is pretty expensive. I don't think I could afford to move to South Ken just to eke out a few more years of life. You could live next to the Natural History Museum and just be put on display there when you die. (laughs) But of course, this is confounding cause and effect, right? So even if you moved to South Ken, it wouldn't increase your life expectancy. It's because the people in South Ken spend half the year in the Caribbean soaking up the sun. (laughs) They're not in South Ken. (laughs) But really, this is about lifestyle and the quality of healthcare and longevity depends on wealth. And there's a massive divide if you look at the poorest and the richest in the UK or anywhere for that matter in terms of life expectancy. But I just thought that to you, Matt, was just a perfect summary of what's going on in the UK. Yeah, and if you think about the state pension, it's kind of unfair that people in poorer parts of the country with shorter life expectancies don't get a higher state pension, right? Because they're going to be living off it for so much less time. So if you want to find this map for yourself, it's great. It's called Lives on the Line if you want to Google it. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, and let's just track where we go from and to. So it turns out that South Ken isn't the highest. It turns out Oxford Circus, where absolutely nobody lives, is the highest. (laughs) Yeah, no one lives there. That's just like (laughs) PO boxes for multinational billionaires. So my guess is there are just a couple of centenarians living in Oxford Circus in flats above Oxford Street, and they've pushed up the statistics. Yeah, because in Oxford Circus, it's an average life expectancy of 96. That's the average. So let's go north to Regent's Park. It goes down to 82. And then St John's Wood, 83. Harrow on the Hill, just 79. And this is all within one city, isn't it? Yeah. And it really is shocking what a big difference longevity and life expectancy makes when you're planning your retirement. And there's something really counterintuitive when you look at your situation as a couple as opposed to individuals. So if you're just getting to 65, your kind of retirement age, the chance of a man surviving until they're 95, like living another 30 years, the odds are one in four. And for a woman, it's one in three. They tend to live a bit longer. But if you're in a couple, the chance of one or other of you making it to age 95 is one in two. So it's much higher than the odds of an individual making it there. And therefore, that needs to be reflected in your planning. Because if you're looking at your pot together, there's a really, really good chance one of you is going to live to be super old and probably need a lot of expensive care. Or out of spite, you could just say, well, stuff you. If you live longer than me, you don't deserve any money. (laughs) You could say that, but I wouldn't (laughs) recommend it. I know we don't make recommendations, but I will break that one. (laughs) But I know that if you're an insurance company, this kind of longevity risk is something which you can actually hedge against. There are swaps, longevity swaps, they're called, where you can sell that risk to somebody else. And of course, What's happened recently is that longevity risk has fallen 
as our lifespan has fallen, the expected lifespan in the UK. And annuity rates have gone up, but I don't think it's for that reason. I think it's because guilt yields have gone up. Because of Andrew Bailey, our friend. But this does potentially make annuities more attractive, right? When you think about how long you might live, the idea of running out of money when you're in your 90s is probably a scary one. Whereas the idea with an annuity is you give your big investment pot over to some insurance company and they guarantee that they're going to pay you an amount every year for as long as you live. Like there's something to be said for that, even if it's suboptimal in terms of maximizing wealth, but just from like a peace of mind point of view for a lot of people, especially people who haven't dealt with investment throughout their whole lives. They've just sort of had a company pension that's been building up to find contribution and now they have to manage it. Like maybe they're not equipped to do that. But there are certain things you should look out for. Firstly, it's definitely worth shopping around for the best rate. Don't just go with whoever you've been to up to that point. It really pays to look around. And also, you probably want to think about inflation linking the payments, because if you don't, clearly, there's going to be a fall in real terms in the value of the payments, such that, you know, imagine you've gone through an inflationary spike period. The payments will be worth much less and won't stretch as far unless it's inflation linked. Inflation is a really big risk. And not even if you just get a massive inflation spike, just 2 or 3% a year compounded over a 30-year retirement is really going to decimate the value of your nominal money. Yeah, and that risk is something you definitely have to think about. In fact, it's probably the biggest risk in retirement. Yeah. And that's why a lot of these pension pots have a large inflation-linked bond allocation, because they are inflation-linked and they are going to increase as the cost of living increases. And the other thing with inflation is that that average inflation rate of 2% based on typical consumption of someone in Britain, for example, might not be your inflation rate. If you're older and become reliant on care, what if the inflation rate for care is 15% per year or something, right? Your inflation rate is going to be way higher than the average. And that's likely because if we are finding it difficult to get workers in that industry, because it's not a pleasant job looking after people with Alzheimer's. It's very disturbing and very upsetting. And imagine a job where you have to see the people that you've become friends with pass away. That's not a comfortable thing for anyone. Plus, a lot of them are doubly incontinent. You know, let's be honest about it. It's not a pleasant job. So if we're struggling to find people to do that job, it's going to be inflationary. So it's very likely that the inflation rate is high for that sector. Yeah, my grandfather's been in a care home now with severe dementia for the past, well, almost a decade, right? The odds of him surviving a decade in there were very slim, but certainly drawn down his assets massively over that time because the state only covers so much. And my mother was in the same situation. When she had Alzheimer's, you know, there was really not much we can do. We had to sell the flat she lived in and the expenses of care were just super high. So planning for that, I think, is difficult. It's interesting. I was looking at some tweets by Paul Lewis, who talks about money matters in the UK. He's a great journalist. I really like his stuff. And his take on it was that it's very unlikely you'll survive a long period of time in care. So you shouldn't worry too much about saving for that eventuality. So I suppose that's the take that many people have. And if I do end up with dementia in a care home, I won't be around for long. And even if you don't get to the stage where you get Alzheimer's or dementia or something so severe, you probably will experience some level of cognitive decline. I don't want to be a downer, but it's just what the stats show as we get older. And that affects our financial literacy. So there's some studies, and I'm looking at one by Fink, Howe and Houston, old age and the decline in financial literacy. 
And it shows that financial literacy declines by around 1% to 2% every year after the age of 60. And what's interesting is that the confidence people have in their financial decisions shows no decline. (laughs) So (laughs) around 70% of people have absolute confidence in their financial decisions. And there's an overconfidence gap which emerges. So at age 60, only 60 of those 70 people should actually be confident in their decisions when you like ask them about what they understand. Whereas when you get up to age 80, only around 40% should be confident in their decisions. So you get this growing overconfidence gap over time. And that again is something in favor of annuities, right? Because you don't have to worry about withdrawal rates. You don't have to worry about asset allocation and bonds and stocks and market crashes. You just say, I've got this amount of money coming in every year. Certainly when you get older, like the other thing is you don't have to take an annuity right at the start of your retirement. You could buy it when you're 75. Or when rates are better. You know, you can be a little bit tactical about it. I think the other problem with annuities is you can't pass them on. So a lot of people, when they're thinking about legacy, they won't buy an annuity necessarily or put a large amount of capital into an annuity because that way they essentially reduce the size of their estate. Yeah, I do get that argument. And I was really against the idea of annuities instinctively until I started looking around and researching for this episode. And I came across that financial literacy overconfidence gap. And I thought, hang on, there's actually a big risk that when you get into your 80s or even your 90s, you make some really stupid decision and then there's nothing to pass on anyway. Because you don't have to buy an annuity with your whole pot. If you've got a big enough amount of money, you could just annuitize half of your money to pay for your basic expenses and the rest is managed as investments. And you probably wouldn't want to be bothered with this anyway. You know, at that point, you're probably not worried about what's going on in markets. I think that's the strategy as a 36-year-old that I find quite attractive in retirement (laughs) is that I would probably try and guarantee myself from, let's say, 70, whenever the state pension kicks in, (laughs) if there is still one when I retire, that I can cover my sort of essential living costs every year, regardless of market. So combine the state pension and whatever I can get from an annuity, that's that. And then over and above that, I would just keep the investments and manage them to give me my discretionary spending. No, I'd go full discretionary for my portfolio, I think. You know, I just don't like giving up the upside for any kind of investments I've got. That's essentially what you're doing. It's kind of getting rid of all upside. Well, it depends how long you live, doesn't it? If you live into your late 90s and 100s, you've made a lot of money off that annuity company, more than you probably would have from investing. Yeah, you could wake up every morning and shake your stick at the insurance company. Ha <laughs> ha, I've won again. <laughs> <laughs> That's what would keep you going. Yeah. I guess annuities have had such a bad rap over the last 15 years with low interest rates where they couldn't offer much money at all that people just overlook them now. It's worth a look at, I think. Yeah, definitely. Now that rates are higher, it's definitely worth a thought for some people, definitely. I mean, let's wrap it up by something a bit more upbeat. So we've talked a lot about death and dementia and incontinence. I think you mentioned, yeah. (laughs) But... This should be the kind of genuinely the golden years of our life, right? We've spent our whole life working and saving and investing to now enjoy the money. So we probably shouldn't be worried too much. Yeah, it's the fun bit. Hopefully you've got grandchildren, which can be a great source of joy. You often end up as a surrogate nanny. Are you going to bring us down again? It's just like working in an unpaid role now. (laughs) But it's a joyful job. You know, obviously you love the grandkids a bit, so it's not so bad. And I think like with all things in investing, The main thing is not making catastrophic mistakes, like get the basics right, 
set a sensible withdrawal rate and, you know, don't worry about things you can't control, like market crashes. Now, we talked about sustainable withdrawal rate, perpetual withdrawal rate, and if you're a member of PensionCraft, we have tools which allow you to simulate your retirement and also your savings so that you can work out the risk of running out of money before you die. So if you want to access that and all the other goodies that come with membership, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. Is it best to just live off the dividends? So this is a strategy focused on what's called natural yield. So with your stocks, instead of selling them a bit each year, you could just live off the dividends that those companies are paying. And with bonds, you could just live off the coupons. The idea is you never sell any of the capital and you never deplete your starting pot. Intuitively, it sounds like it makes sense. So what's the drawback of this? I think the primary one is that if you go for high dividend stocks, you're not going to get that capital growth. You can't have both. So what does that mean in terms of the size of the pot? Well, it's not as good as an allocation for equity where you go for more capital growth. So you are giving up that upside. That's the drawback. So what you're talking about is a total return strategy, right? That's right, where you combine the income component with the capital growth component. And because the US is such a large proportion of most people's portfolios, because its market cap is so big, they are very stingy payers when it comes to dividends. So at the moment, as the US dominates, usually the dividend yield on a global portfolio will not be high. And I also have an issue with living off the dividends as an idea, because it makes it so hard to plan. What if next year the dividend yield drops significantly? Are you going to suddenly be able to cut your spending by 30, 40% in a year just because companies are tightening their belts? That is a problem. And of course, if there's a recession, that's what would happen because companies have got less income. And remember, these dividends are purely at the discretion of the board. So if they think there's going to be falling revenue ahead and they need to save money to live through that difficult period, they can cut the dividend to zero. Yeah. And I also think you'll probably end up with a less diversified portfolio if you focus on dividend stocks than if you just focused on the total investable universe. Because usually it's just a couple of sectors that have a high dividend. It could be utilities, it could be energy companies, and that comes with its own concentration risk. So whatever tilt you choose away from market cap is going to introduce some kind of concentration risk. Also country risk, because countries like the UK typically pay a much higher dividend. I guess you could say, I'll just stay maximally diversified and own the world and live off that relatively low dividend yield. But what that means is to fund the same level of retirement spending, you're going to need a much bigger pot. Yeah, the size of the dividend pot would have to be pretty chunky, depending on what the dividend yield is of the average stock in your portfolio. But like you say, I think what makes it difficult to plan is the variability of the dividend yield. I think people like it instinctively because they compare investing in stocks to something they know more about, like investing in a buy-to-let property. And they will think, well, if I've got a buy-to-let that I own outright, I'll just live off the rental payments. I'm not going to start selling little chunks of the house each year <laughs> to fund my retirement. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They, they compare it to that, like I'll just live off the dividends. And buy-to-lets can be thought of a little bit like inflation-linked bonds. They do throw off these inflation-linked cash flows because, of course, if costs increase, then you can increase the rent that your tenants will pay. Whereas for dividend stocks, the worry is always that the capital growth is going to be less than inflation over a fairly long period of time. 
that's much less likely if you're going for a more broad portfolio where the capital growth is higher. So the inflation linkage component is also something to worry about if you go for high dividend paying stocks, I think. You would have certainly tilted towards struggling markets, right, over the last 10, 15 years since the financial crisis. You'd have been massively overweight the UK, for example, where our companies tend to pay high dividends, but growth has been anemic. And energy companies and miners, which didn't do well over that period. Of course, they're doing well now. And so is the UK. It has for a while, not so much this year. But that's the drawback, I think. Smaller capital growth is going to be a problem over the long term because of inflation. So should we just ignore dividends? Are they kind of irrelevant? They're certainly important, I think, for long-term return. If you take them out of the equation, there's a massive fall in the compounded growth of stocks. A big part of the stock success story is the dividends that you reinvest. So I don't think you can ignore them. But I think relying completely on just that component of return is problematic. I mean, if you are going to do this, I'd probably do it for just some of my portfolio. I wouldn't rely completely on dividends. And I guess the other thing with a dividend-focused portfolio is it's not as set and forget, is it, as your traditional market cap-weighted portfolio, because the companies paying the most dividends each year might not be the same ones. Or they could fail. You know, if you're paying out a huge dividend and it's something they can't really afford, you have to really pay attention to dividend sustainability. So you'd have to look at metrics like dividend cover. What proportion of their free cash flow are they forking out to their shareholders every year? And if that's not sustainable anymore, then you'd have to seriously think about taking that stock out. So you'd have to actively manage which stocks you've got in your dividend portfolio over time. Or you'd have to buy a fund which does that for you. Probably at a cost. Yeah, at a cost, which you'd have to pay in terms of expense ratio. I guess the advantage of this strategy is that it does place a cap on your withdrawal rate. So you're not going to be in that position where you just go a bit crazy and start <laughs> withdrawing, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent of your portfolio each year because you're of the mind that you're just going to live off this natural yield. And there could be a catastrophe. I mean, it might be that the government suddenly decides that they're going to tax dividend withdrawals much more heavily. And if it's not in a tax sheltered account, then that could be a big problem. So, you know, it, it isn't without its risks. If you have a more diversified approach, I think you've got more safety in your retirement, which is ultimately what people want. That's a really interesting point, because the whole idea of safety in retirement is kind of not agreed on about what safety means in a way, right? Like people doing dividend investing think they're doing the most safe thing, don't they? Because it's impossible for them to completely deplete their pot if they stick to that idea of only living off the dividends. But that's not guaranteed safety, is it? Because like we say, there are risks to the dividend payout which means you might have to break your plan. Yeah, ultimately, I think safety comes from flexibility. And that means diversification of your strategies as well as your individual investment. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.